0: Oh yes guys, the Dungeons and Dragons movie is just around the corner, and just as the movie studios are trying to cash in on the revitalization of the franchise, I am also trying to with this episode cash in on the release of the new movie. And what better way to cash in on the popularity of the franchise than to talk about the historical period when the game was most popular, the Satanic Panic. Oh yes guys, because during the Satanic Panic, d sales skyrocketed. So today we're gonna be invoking the glory days of the franchise, and right off the bat I need to provide a trigger warning we are going to be talking today about teenage suicide. If this is something you do not want to listen to, I guess skip this episode, it's a very unfortunate, very serious topic that due to religious propaganda got tied into the game itself. But if you are a religious fundamentalist, I guess I should provide you a plethora of other trigger warnings for this episode as well, because per the bullshit that you pulled directly from your assholes, Dungeons and Dragons is a fantasy role playing game which uses demonology, witchcraft, voodoo, murder, rape, blasphemy, suicide, assassination, insanity, sex perversion, homosexuality, prostitution, satanic type rituals, gambling, barbarism, cannibalism, sadism, desecration, demon summoning, necromantics, divination, and other teachings. Hail Satan! Okay, man so uh first i want to ask you this did you watch the trailer for the new dungeons and dragons movie did i
1: i don't think i i think i saw some like teaser material but i haven't watched the trailer yet uh-huh. but it i hear they're bringing a different vibe to it than the last dungeons and dragons movie so oh yeah that's a step in the right direction
0: <laughs> and i want to point out to the listeners i never played dungeons and dragons in my life i never watched stranger things either and i know that DD is now a thing because of stranger things it's back <laughs> Yeah, but I did watch the 2000
1: shitty movie. (laughs) All right. Okay. So you've got the setting, uh-huh. but yeah, I have played uh, Dungeons and Dragons for 30 years. I want to say that sounds about right. And if uh, any listeners are not familiar with sort of the basic concept of Dungeons and Dragons, it's basically a, a what we call a tabletop role-playing game. Some buddies get together around a table and one of them who is called the dungeon master is basically telling everybody else at the table a story and everyone else who is at the table controls the actions of one character in that story. Now, anytime uh, they want to do something where they may or may not succeed in doing it, like trying to jump over a ravine or stab a bad guy with a sword or cast a magic spell, something with a chance of failure, that's when you bust out your dice and you roll some dice. And the odds of success and the amount of success that you have is all based on a system of rules that is incredibly complicated. And that's Dungeons and Dragons.
0: How I'm familiar with Dungeons and Dragons is through video games, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially ones that are actually linked to Dungeons and Dragons, like, let's say, Neverwinter. Knights Mm -hmm. or Eye of the Beholder. I think Mm -hmm. that's what it's called. I play that one as well. It has you tracking down the the maze or the dungeon, the labyrinth, whatever, just like you would with pencil and paper on those uh, grid papers. Oh yeah,
1: like graph paper. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nothing more satisfying than drawing a map on a piece of graph paper. As a dungeon (laughs) master, you're like, here we go. I've got this all figured out. I can spend 20 minutes and we can get a half hour to three hours worth of entertainment out of this.
0: And uh, actually, when did you start playing Dungeons & Dragons?
1: Uh, I want to say it would have been early 90s. I would have been about 12... uh, my older brother had been playing it and i had always looked up to my older brother and mm-hmm. that piqued my curiosity but it was around that age that i finally got some friends of my own that i could play with because you know my my older brother i was i was kind of an annoying kid i'll grant him that and so uh, he didn't want to play with me as much as he wanted to play with friends his own age uh, mm-hmm. but i made some friends my age that i could play dungeons and dragons with eric and nathan shout out to eric and nathan so this is early 90s this was maybe the third edition uh this was advanced dungeons and dragons second edition is the the edition that that I played and the one that I still play to this day.
0: Okay, so you, you essentially played the one that was the result of trying to remove any satanic imagery from it due to the satanic panic.
1: Yes, they made a lot of adjustments for second edition, but one of them was definitely changing the names of demons and devils to Batezu and. Tanari uh-huh. uh, to give them sort of plausible deniability and, and any other sort of references to like hell got changed to uh, one of the outer planes you know things like that they did a lot of making their conception of a hell less aligned with the traditional uh-huh. Christian conception of hell and so it
0: gave them that you know plausible deniability and you know what what's so funny after the satanic panic they brought back all of that to d d yeah but this this trope of uh, doing devil uh demon type stuff but giving it a different name was no longer a part of d d but became a part of other fantasy games especially like in world of warcraft nowadays you have mm-hmm. demons but it's all like different planes and these different legions and races and whatnot nobody calls them demons or devils
1: and to an extent i almost think that that is liberating in a way if you if it takes you away from that sort of christian hegemony it's it's making it secular yeah or yeah it makes it just
0: more fantastical like of course course they wouldn't have our same things mm-hmm. you know something that you maybe would not know but i noticed reading through these changes in dnd like they changed what demons and devils were but then lesser demons were changed to be referred to as fiends the yes. word fiend, and this is something that was incorporated into Oh cards Mm. (laughs) in the 2000s because there is a type of monster card that is essentially the demon monster Mm -hmm. card but in the american translated version it's called a fiend card
1: yeah yeah i could see them being like you know what let's save ourselves some trouble let's do what tsr did and let's just call these guys fiends yeah and, and also, you know, uh, D&D started introduce, reintroducing more uh, Christian iconography of, of hell after it was bought back by, uh, or was bought by Wizards of the Coast, the mm-hmm. creators of uh, Magic the Gathering. It was originally made, uh, owned by a company called TSR and Gary Gygax, who's largely credited with being the creator of D&D, even though, you know, it involved a lot of people. You know, that's when uh, he just let somebody else take the reins. And you could definitely see a, a big shift in making the game more accessible after Wizard of the Coast bought it. At that point, they had released basically three different editions of Dungeons & Dragons. There was Dungeons & Dragons also known as Basic Dungeons & Dragons. And then there was Advanced Dungeons & Dragons and then Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 2nd edition. Uh, 2nd edition in addition to uh, getting rid of the devils. uh, They also got rid of or they tried to adjust a lot of rules concerns and balance issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, But instead of doing that by streamlining the rules, they did that by making them sort of more draconian and nonsensical. So it's I think arguably the most complicated edition of Dungeons and Dragons, but also because I learned it all when I was 12, I never bothered or was interested in learning another one. Like I've just internalized <laughs> it. Like that's the one that I do.
0: I think also they uh, like changed the demons and devils, but still you had vampires and werewolves and all of these other supernatural creatures. And I don't know how you're, you're probably aware of comic books. Uh, oh, and their history, Yeah. So, uh, you know, when the comics code authority became a thing, they mm-hmm. banned the references to Werewolves and vampires and other supernatural creatures in comic books.
1: Yeah. And it, it's interesting that they both sort of were self censorious in that way. Like they definitely decided to censor themselves rather than have more outside interference come in and, you know, disrupt their industry. But I guess it's just a change in times that they were more concerned about demons and devils uh, than they were about vampires and werewolves. But I think that leads us to a natural transition. Why were they more concerned about demons
0: and devils? Uh, because of <laughs> all the stuff that was going on with the satanic panic at the time yes yes now do, do you know how the satanic panic started i think it started like in the late 70s but it was not dungeons and dragons it was already present before this whole D fiasco
1: yeah and and obviously there's a lot of historical roots that go back much farther you know the inquisition the protocols of the elders of zion the salem witch trials all these, these sort of traditional uh moral panics
0: yeah have have their echoes here in in the satanic panic of the, the late 70s into the 80s. I would even argue that it's the same force of humanity, of moral panic, but assuming a different mask throughout every decade.
1: Mm-hmm. But also they do seem to be pulling into that same root, that same origin or that same uh, mm-hmm. impulse. But I think also they're informing each other. You know, I, I think that they draw on a history and build on one another. They don't sort of just each pop up
0: and then go <laughs> away entirely. It's like D every few decades uh, putting out a new rule set mm-hmm. the moral panic <laughs> pulls out a new rule set a new mask new style and everything yeah how it will express itself like back in the old days it was inquisition it was witch trials then it was comic books you know in the 50s 60s 70s mm-hmm. and then satanic panic and then yeah. i don't know video games and now it's again satanic panic but through QAnon shit QAnon, and i would ar- i would even argue a lot of the uh groomer
1: concerns that you hear are yeah. all sort of another aspect of this mass hysteria but I I always think that the satanic panic of the 80s is such an interesting example of mass hysteria because you know a lot of people my age have lived through it like this is a living mass hysteria that we saw begin and for the most part although not entirely end and we can all say wow our entire society or you know vast this was not just something that like a weirdo on your street believed like QAnon you were seeing this on news segments you were seeing this on Sally Jesse Raphael and 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 Donahue people interviewing mm-hmm. people claiming that they were abused by satanic rituals And, and, and everybody like, "Mm, yeah, this is a problem. We need to look into this.
0: I actually wanted to ask you. So I know that you grew up mainly in the eighties and nineties, early nineties. And I am aware that you had a Catholic upbringing.
1: Yes. I was raised Catholic.
0: Okay. So did you maybe feel the effects of satanic panic in your childhood? Not so much that I
1: recall. My parents were much more culturally religious than in terms of their religious beliefs. I, and, and also like the Catholic church at the very least, my Catholic church that I went to was not super hardcore into like mysticism. Like I'm sure if I went and I talked to my priest and was like, is, and asked him specific questions about sort of mystical acts of faith that would be happening, you know, like transubstantiation and he would be like, yeah, that's actually happening. And yes, actually the devil is real. But I think we were very much what uh, we used to call uh salad bar Catholics. Mm-hmm. Where you walk down and you pick out what you want to keep and you leave behind what you don't want. And at the end of the day, you say, yeah, I'm a
0: Catholic. You know,
1: we were Christmas and Easter Catholics. Is when, yeah. they call it.
0: But also, I, I would not uh, like to connect salad bars with religious movements because, as you are aware, are aware mm-hmm. <laughs> do you know of the religious sect that poisoned a uh, salad bar and as a bioterrorist movement? Oof, uh,
1: no, <laughs> that's terrible.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think they're called the Rajishis. I think it was in the 80s or something.
1: Yeah, that is is not what I meant by that,
0: (laughs) by salad bar Catholics. (laughs) Oh, man, sorry for bringing that up. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. But yeah, I, f- I find it interesting that you did not feel the effects of this, and yet you had these interests in D and D and fantasy and stuff.
1: Yeah, it was sort of out there in the larger culture, you know, that mm-hmm. you know people were thinking that. But that was never something that that me or my family bought into.
0: But but the groups that did buy into it were evangelists, and in the seventies and eighties, evangelists became you know a very popular thing. And it's very true, vocal.
1: Yeah, they gained a, a lot more public consciousness. You know. Especially, I think with uh, television becoming you know broader with the rise of cable TV, more opportunities for voices like that to reach out to the public. You know, and th- I think there were a lot of other factors that ended up leading up to the Satanic Panic. Obviously, there was the founding of the se- the Church of Satan uh, mm-hmm. by Anton Levay. I want to say what was it late late sixties. Yeah. Yeah. You've have the, the sexual revolution of the seventies was obviously upsetting a lot on moral conservatives. And you've got the 1973 film, the exorcist, which Mm -hmm. definitely led to, uh, that scared a lot of people and it struck a chord with a lot of people. A lot of people were like, this is real. That could really happen.
0: Yeah. And the film itself is not that scary. It's more like the, it's scary in a religious sense. It reminded people of this religious type of horror and that kind of mindset. Yeah, and uh, it yeah, it's not so much
1: not gory, it's not like you're thinking, but it's definitely creepy. And 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 and, and rightly viewed as a classic. You actually had some cool story related to The Exorcist. Oh the yeah, book. I remember uh reading somewhere and it might have even been in Remembering Satan, a book by Lawrence Wright, which is a fantastic book, and I want to talk about that in a hot minute. But mm-hmm. in there he mentions that after The Exorcist came out, they took a survey of how many people thought that like the devil was real and demonic possession was real. And- and you know they found out that the majority of people who believed in demonic possession said that they would go to a Catholic priest in order to get this addressed, even if they weren't Catholic, even if they were some former Protestant. They thought <laughs> this is this is a Catholic problem. We got to go to the experts for this.
0: And I, I was telling you like uh, how funny this is because the Protestants who wanted independence from you know the Catholics historically mm-hmm. always wanted it. It's like uh, children who want independence from their parents, but then as soon as something bad happens happens you come crying back to your daddy <laughs> to fix it yeah you you've, you know I, as as a cultural catholic i will i will
1: take some pride in saying like yeah we're the we're, we're the real one all the other ones you guys are doing your own thing but <laughs>
0: Like, I remember when
1: I was a kid and I was like, decided that I wasn't, I didn't believe in God so much or whatever. And it never even occurred to me be like, oh, well, maybe it's one of the other religions. It's like, no, it's, if it's not Catholicism, it's none of them. Let's just forget these other ones.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When, when it comes to banishing demons, you're the real deal. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. We've we've
0: got the bona fides in that one. Oh, so it it seems like the non-Catholics are the ones who can, you know, maintain their beliefs, but within a safe space, within a closed bubble. (laughs) But as soon as Satan grabs a hold of them.
1: Yeah, yeah, you get an outside factor. Yeah, you're going to want somebody that's carrying a big stick. But I mentioned that book, Remembering Satan, uh, which is about Lawrence Wright, or by a guy named Lawrence Wright, and is about the only case where someone was charged with satanic ritual abuse and the accused confessed. Only time that it happened in all of America. At one point, uh, he mentions that if every accusation of satanic ritual abuse had turned out to be true, it would have meant that there were literally hundreds of thousands of otherwise unknown and
0: unsolved murders that no one else reported or noticed.
1: Like, it, it would be literally inconceivable.
0: Yeah, but but that parallels with what we're seeing today with QAnon and with these yeah. whole theories of missing people and these tunnels uh, under major cities and reptilians and whatnot.
1: Yeah, yeah but I think that's eventually why you started seeing these sort of ideas get pushed away from the mainstream and why they became sort of more fringe ideas is that the claims started to becoming more and more ludicrous and it involved a larger and larger suspension of disbelief to get there. But, uh, so this case Yes. uh, Remembering Satan it takes place in the Pacific Northwest and it was about a sheriff's deputy named Paul Ingram who was accused of being in a satanic cult and sexually assaulting his own daughters with the of of his cult. They they arrested him after the charges were brought up. They said, Well, we gotta take you in. These seem like credible enough charges. Because it just started off with the, the daughter saying that he was sexually assaulting them, maybe with mm-hmm. some other men at a poker game that he was having, something like that. Okay. Uh and so uh while he was in jail, he was basically being told by his co-workers, because he was arrested by the sheriff's department, that, you know, we think this is true and you're not gonna go ahead and call your daughters liars. He eventually was coerced into believing what he had been accused of and confessing to it. But then the stories got more and more complicated and the daughters started accusing more and more people and other members of the sheriff's department. And then their stories started including like aspects of the supernatural. Like I know I've got some sections that I dog. I I think I
0: remember there were stories of uh, her as a child being brought before some kind of stone altar or whatever. Yeah. Where where they were killing babies. The usual, ritual abuse stuff yeah yeah
1: like someone said that they were put into a barrel and the barrel was then filled with mutilated baby parts and it's like mm. this is clearly not something that happened this yeah. is literally impossible. And so eventually the case just sort of fell apart. I think the accused pled guilty, but then started like trying to get appeals because he's like, wait a second. None of that happened. I was just completely out of my mind at that point.
0: Okay, and his daughter, was she making these allegations with the help of repressive memory, hypnosis therapy, whatever?
1: Uh, There was some hypnosis therapy in there. And it was also both daughters would accuse him. He had two daughters and they both accused him. Uh, But whenever they would tell the narrative of what happened. Neither of them would describe the other one being there, Mm -hmm. uh, which I thought was an, an interesting take on it. But I just, I wanted to pull out this one quote from here. That is just about statistics for how widespread belief in satanic ritual abuse was at this point in time. A 1991 survey of members of the American Psychological Association found that 30% of the respondents had treated at least one client who claimed to have suffered from satanic ritual abuse. And 93% of those who completed a second survey believed their clients' claims to be true. Another poll addressed the opinions of social workers in California. Nearly half of those interviews accepted the idea that satanic ritual abuse involved a national conspiracy of multi-generational abusers and baby killers, and that many of these people were prominent in their communities and appeared to live completely exemplary lives. A majority of those polls believe that the victims of such extreme abuse were likely to have repressed memories of it, and that contrary to scientific evidence, hypnosis increased the likelihood of accurate retelling of what has happened.
0: And as we do know now, hypnosis is not a tool for uh, retrieving uh, repressed memories. It is a tool for behavior modification it is something that I've been talking a lot about on my show relating to alien abduction scenarios and it is so mm-hmm. interesting how many parallels there are between satanic panic and the whole alien abduction craze because the alien abduction craze started in the 80s and uh, grew and grew more into the 90s right as you know we were uh, shedding away the satanic panic but again we are just shifting the focus from Satan now to aliens and a lot of these uh, hypnotherapists who who actually helped these people make these satanic ritual abuse allegations, went on to treat people for alien abduction scenarios.
1: Yeah, and it, it definitely is one of those things where the psychiatrist or the hypnotist can do it without even realizing it. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not that yeah. they were going around consciously saying like, I can't wait to convince this teen that she was sexually assaulted by her father in a satanic ritual. But it's it just sort of almost like a game of Dungeons and Dragons, a mm-hmm. mutually constructed narrative. Yes,
0: yes. I oftentimes, and I know you're a skeptic, but I oftentimes talk about this hypnotherapy being a kind of mediumship. Only mm. instead of like in re- in those spiritualist seances, instead of the person who is talking with the spirit And channeling them being the medium, the medium is the hypnotherapist, but using the client as the conduit. And I do see it, you know, as forming a narrative that is being pulled from the collective unconscious in a way. Now, in the 80s, satanic panic was a part of the collective unconscious of the whole psychological and sociological atmosphere in America back then. But Mm -hmm. then in the 90s, it was alien abductions. Mm. And, uh, and was there alien abductions in the 50s too? Is that when an echo there, do you think? Yes, but but it was not as prevalent as in the 90s. Mm. So in the 90s, we had uh, Bud Hopkins, who was the most well-known r- researcher of alien abductions. And he made it, he was the, like the Walt Disney of alien abductions. He first mm-hmm. started employing these psych- psychotherapists in the 80s. But by the 90s, he was doing this himself. He formed his own institute, I think the, the Intruders Inst- Foundation, it was called. And he was bringing people to his own apartment every single day to hypnotize them and retrieve these alien abduction scenarios. Mm, got it. <laughs> like a, like a factory. Yeah. And he was an artist. He was an artist. He was not even, you know, a therapist. These well, uh, sounds like a fascinating guy. Yeah. <laughs> Now, now, this reminds me also uh, about uh, Michelle Remembers. You're aware mm. of that book.
1: Yes. Uh, yes. Michelle Remembers was a therapist and a patient allegedly uh, uncovering repressed memories of systemic child abuse that was never independently verified. You know, reporters were never able to de- determine any truth to any of these scenarios that were imagined in this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but it, it was still a
0: huge bestseller and definitely was one of the foundational works that led up to the satanic panic. Yes. And Also, what I find very interesting in that case is that this hypnotherapist uh, who implanted these false memories into his patient, who is decades younger than him, Mm -hmm. they also ended up marrying each other. Yeah. So how fucked up is that?
1: Yeah, I mean, that is a violation on ethics in any number of ways. There's
0: definitely kind of should be ground rules for that kind of relationship, by the way, I'm sure. But when you have somebody else, you know, doing this without your consent, implanting false memories and maybe implanting, you know, these suggestions that you should marry them, that's kind of But definitely
1: at the very least, implanting traumatic memories of uh, alien abduction seems to me like a bad thing to be doing to people. Oh yeah, it's the new
0: satanic panic.
1: Yeah, there was also another big event that laid the groundwork for the satanic Britannic Panic was the McMartin preschool trial where a mother accused a uh, preschool of systemically abusing every child in the preschool. The mother was later found out to be delusional. The criminal trial went on for like years and years. No one was ever found guilty of anything.
0: And I think it is still to this day the most expensive and longest lasting trial in American history. I wouldn't be surprised and and obviously like if you are going
1: to say that this crime has committed, then you really have to take it seriously and you really do need to pour a lot of
0: resources into it. It's a shame that they didn't realize that it had not been committed before it had started. Yeah. I, I often saw like it being brought up the McMartin preschool trial as an example of why, how much money the satanic panic actually cost the US government mm-hmm. uh, the
1: other thing that I wanted a thing leading up to specifically the satanic panic as it relates to Dungeons and Dragons is uh, the case of James Dallas Egbert III, a college student child prodigy who disappeared and was known to play Dungeons and Dragons yeah and th- those two are totally unrelated as we that is out. what eventually happened but uh, the family, so they sent this kid off to college And he was too young to be going there But they, had, he was one of those kids that skipped a couple grades Yeah, I think he was a 16 When he yeah, was so he freshman at was- college socially isolated, you know, an awkward kid, probably I'm going to say neurotypical based on their descriptions of, Mm -hmm. or, uh, neurodivergent based on their descriptions of him.
0: Oh yeah. And he was also abusing drugs and he was, uh, struggling with closeted homosexuality at that time.
1: Yes. He was also not entirely closeted because he was going out to, uh, gay clubs is my understanding. Mm -hmm. But the, the family hired this investigator, William Deer, who wrote a book called the dungeon master, which is a wild book. Uh, mostly because... Because it's very pulpy. He basically describes himself as a modern day Doc Savage, you know, and he's got his private jet and his team of specialist friends like ex-Green Berets and I've got secret tech and, and homing devices <laughs> and all this stuff that was like very cool for 1979. And so he gets hired and he hops in his private jet and he flies up to the University of Michigan to see if he can find the missing James Dallas Egbert III. And first thing he does is he goes to his room and he sees, ah, this guy plays Dungeons and dragons, eh? Uh-huh. Mm. And then he sees on, Uh, he has a piece of cork board and there are push pins in it in a very unique shape. And he says, that means something. And it almost sort of does. Cause it turns out he was, Egbert was using those push pins to create sort of a map of the steam tunnels that went mm-hmm. underneath uh, the university where they used yes. to do sort of live action role playing.
0: Now that, that was actually an urban legend that was already established before deer even visited the university. Like it was already being talked about that. These, yeah, the kids were sort of already theorizing. Yeah, that, that they were basically LARPing Dungeons and Dragons in the steam tunnels. But what I think with uh, Dallas is that he was mapping the steam tunnels because eventually he went down there to try and commit suicide.
1: Well, he went down there and he lived down there for a little while because he brought food with him. He brought down like uh, those crackers cheese, and cheese crackers. Yes. Yeah. So he hung out down there for a little while. And there was also the assumption, it got really hot down there. He might've gotten heat exposure. He might've passed out and gotten dehydrated. Rated, but eventually, well... <laughs> (laughs) Deer does a couple of funny things in the course of his investigation. One of them is put an ad out in the college newspaper saying he wants to play Dungeons and Dragons with somebody so he can understand what Dungeons and Dragons is. (laughs) I I heard that he
0: actually put an ad to
1: like uh, pay for a dungeon master. (laughs) Yes. And his, the dungeon master brought like one friend with him and they play D&D with him. And there's an entire chapter of the book. That's just him playing Dungeons and Dragons. But later on when he was talking about uh, how he had played, I wanted to just give this pull quote, which is also a, Uh, a good paragraph the single game i had played in my motel room provided an inkling of how dungeons and dragons could grip a person i had concentrated so hard on evading dangers trying to gather fortune and simply staying alive that for long periods i actually forgot where i was and became a magic user in the perilous maze my mind pictured the maze as the dungeon masters described it, and it seemed as if my body temperature rose as the air became moist and steamy. My body hurt after those big rats attacked me. Once, when I got up to go to the bathroom, I developed a limp. Very shortly after I began the game, I was no longer in the motel room. I had escaped to another place, another world, another time.
0: Wow. <laughs> He had the time of his life.
1: Yeah. And you could see how somebody reading that would be like, wow, it sounds like it can really take you over. It sounds like this is, this is almost hypnotic in its powers playing Dungeons
0: and Dragons. Okay. And th- this is from his book that was yes. in 84. Mm-hmm. Okay. But you are aware that there was another book two years prior, Mazes and Monsters. That was a fictionalized account of this yes. whole fiasco. Here's a
1: fun Mazes and Monsters tidbit. My wife and I met uh, at a friend's movie night where they were showing the film at a of mazes and monsters <laughs> that was our first first time
0: we'd uh, hung out okay it's very funny because uh, as, as we know tom hanks uh, makes his first film debut in mazes and monsters the tv mm-hmm. movie and my wife hates tom hanks yeah and uh, as we know tom hanks likes to piss in all of his movies and now you were talking about this <laughs> excerpt where deer was going for a piss <laughs> yeah
1: and uh, and that was uh, uh, i think mazes and monsters was originally a tv movie and that also led to more of the panic about Dungeons and Dragons. There was also uh, the famous Jack Chick tract Darkest Dungeons. Are you
0: familiar with Jack Chick? Uh, I am familiar with his Chick tracts.
1: Yes Yeah. in case anybody, any listeners aren't they're basically uh, very small comic books that would be handed out for free by people who were evangelizing and one of them was about how if you're playing Dungeons and Dragons that's just getting you ready to actually cast magic spells you're going to go out there and you're going to do some real evil magic and it's it's basically devil stuff which hmm. you know for me as a person who has played dungeons and dragons i have not had any supernatural experiences with it i have never once transitioned from dungeons and dragons to doing actual magic stuff or uh, attempt to do it or use any of the source material uh mostly because the source material was all written by guys from wisconsin in the late 70s oh
0: yeah uh, <laughs> who are who are trying to steal tolkien's work
1: <laughs> Mm-hmm. The idea that this could be magical in the way that it's detractors were saying is very absurd to me. It's, you could say that it certainly has the magic of friendship and the magic of imagination, mm-hmm. but to say that it has the magic of opening a gateway to hell and a demon pops out is very absurd.
0: Oh, but I, I do think that it has a certain magic in like a divination quality in it. You're no, playing tell with me ar- archetypes, you're playing with archetypes, just like with tarot and you're forming a storyline and you, you can use the storyline to try and piece together something that's happening in your life well i would say if i if i had played
1: dungeons and dragons with some like i guess the real trick would to be try to not be literal about it (laughs) because i definitely don't want to be like i'm having a lot of trouble at work make a character that looks like my boss so i can stab him you know (laughs) (laughs) Like, and that's a metaphor for me defeating my work problems.
0: (laughs) Okay. Here's something. Here's an example. So I told you yesterday, I contacted my friend, Carly, the village terror witch. Mm -hmm. And I asked her, have you ever used dungeons and dragons for divination? Because she uses everything for divination. Like the other day she made a whole story on Instagram. She bought one of those. It's the plant that lives in the desert that clumps up when it's dry. And then when rain falls, it opens up. Oh, okay. No. And she was using that for divination for some reason. <laughs> so sure. she, she uses everything. I asked about D&D and she's like, no, but I would love to try. I actually have a set of the game. I just don't know how to play it. Mm-hmm. And then I told her like I'm recording tomorrow with you about the satanic panic and that I think it can be used for magic and divination. But the problem is others seeing a problem in that. Sure. It's magic. So what? <laughs> <laughs> and she's le- like, oh, I'll fuck around with that. Ha ha ha. To the garage with an exclamation point. Mm-hmm. I know exactly where the box is. And she found the box of, of uh, I think, the starters that she has. And mm-hmm. she's so funny. Like, when you when you chat with her, like, give her an idea, she immediately, immediately goes to, to do that. I love that enthusiasm. <laughs> so I told her, like, you can send out your intention and roll the dice, then read the entries in the manual, just like bibliomancy. Uh, For those who do not know, bibliomancy is the act of divination by opening up a book and reading a random line in the book and using that as as a message. And ironically enough, that's what Christians do. And that's exactly (laughs) what she said. Oh, this sounds really fun. And ironically, Christians practice bibliomancy too with the Bible. It's true. (laughs) They often open it up and say, let let where it opens inspire me for today. Oh yeah, but you see, that is more prevalent maybe in Catholicism because I heard her talk about this in a few uh, other shows that uh, these more uh, Protestant Christian denominations actually preach that that is devil's work. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if they did, but they seem to find devil's work in a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And she said, oh, I am excited D&D would be a great storytelling inspiration. Okay, I have the book, not the rule book, the story playbook. And then Mm -hmm. she just opened randomly. I'm trying it right now. I've never played it either. Since neither of us knows what to do next, chaos rules apply. I opened to a random page and now I will find the corresponding numbers, like from the dice roll. And then she says, ha, it's actually fairly accurate. I asked what I need to know today. And it said, wind and weather have done their work here and little remains in these houses or their former contents. And in quotation marks, she said, feeling of being worn down. (laughs) That's how she interprets this. The next entry was, this tower was formerly the home of a human wizard who was killed fighting the ash zombies that overran the Thunder Tree years ago. Her interpretation, living back home. (laughs) Next one, the smithy was abandoned long ago. Her interpretation, the parts of myself that felt unlovable. And the last one, searching through the wreckage for hidden treasures. Meaning of that, it's me, I am the hidden treasure. And then a million smiley faces, and this was fun. Well, I'm glad you had a good time, and I'm glad you realized that she is the hidden treasure. What a wonderful (laughs) sentiment. Yes, yes. You know, divination, like me and Carly and a few of the people I communicate with, we don't see divination like tarot, let's say, as, oh, spirits, you're channeling spirits and they're telling you messages. It's more like you're playing with archetypes and you're constructing a story, a narrative that you can maybe use to piece together something happening in your own life. To me, they they work... best and even dream interpretation works best as
1: as a rorschach test you know Mm -hmm. it means what you think it means look at this the problem that i have and maybe it's just the specific dungeons and dragons games that i've played the problem with me of that is that there's almost there's too much intentionality Mm -hmm. to dungeons and dragons
0: you know what i mean like i feel like for this sort of and it also always feels very literal I don't know. Okay. But but the thing is, let's say with tarot, you are playing with archetypes, but you are not the archetype, but with dungeons and dragons, you're playing with archetypes and you're assuming a role of one of the archetypes within the story, Yeah, which makes it a bit different. Now, yeah. I don't know how, how much randomness there is. Is is there a component of D&D where you are randomly looking in the manual uh, of what's going to happen next in the dungeon?
1: Uh, No, uh, unless you're in some very specific situations, like using a magical item called the deck of many things. That could very easily happen. Or if you're rolling on a treasure table for having defeated a monster and you want to randomly determine what treasure they had on them. Okay. And there's also in AD&D first edition in the Dungeon Master's Guide, in the back there is a random dungeon generation table where if you wanted, you could just randomly create a dungeon just by rolling dice. They have the tool for that. But uh, Hmm. almost nobody plays, or, or I don't play that... Randomly, just because that doesn't create a satisfying narrative. Do you know what I mean? And there there are lots of different ways that you can approach playing in Dungeons & Dragons. The three main ones that my friends and I have defined are narrativist, where you're playing because this is a way to create a story and you want to see where the story is going. Simulationist, where you want it to be able to recreate something. You want your rule system to be accurate. And this lends itself back to Dungeons & Dragons' roots in wargaming. And then there's also the gamest, uh who want to... Uh, have fun levels of challenges and they want all the rules to be sort of balanced. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those Three related and overlapping approaches are, I'm much more of a narrativist. And so my dungeon master tends to come in with a lot of story, very well established. And when I'm playing as a dungeon master, I like to come in with a, a, a storyline that is set up more or less how I'd like it to go. To an extent, as players, you have free will to control what your characters do, right? Like I could say, you're at a bar and you say, well, I'm going to leave this bar and I'm going to go across the street to another bar. <laughs> and But what you don't know is when you go to that other bar, I'm going to have the exact same thing happen that would have happened in that first bar. Okay, okay. My will is sort of, I can make it somewhat inevitable. All you can really do is drag your heels and slow me down.
0: Okay, so what's going to happen happens, but you have the ability to just change the setting of where it happens and when. <laughs> yeah,
1: like I think, you know, like there's always the idea that at any given time, if a dungeon master doesn't like you, they can just say, uh oh,
0: a meteor fell from the sky and crushes all of you. You're all dead. Game over. Have a good one. Ah, interesting. I-, I thought maybe there is some kind of component with those storybooks of, you know, those books, uh, choose your <clears> own <throat> adventure. So, that there would be some randomness.
1: There are pre-generated adventures that you can use and Uh they also, they tend to be a little bit less on rails than the way that I want to set my games up. Although I'll admit there are times when I'm playing when I will not have anything advanced and I will just improvise. I think if I do that too much, players become dissatisfied with it because I am not as good at generating a fully realized fantasy world off the top of my head as I am if I have some time to prepare. And so there are pre-generated adventures like those uh, those stories Line, Facebook that your pen, your friend was uh, pulling from, mm-hmm. uh, but for the most part, the people that I know that play come up with their own stories. My dungeon master, who also wrote a cryptid book, he wrote uh, "Fearsome Creatures of the Lumberwoods." Uh, Hal okay. Johnson. Uh, it was it was like a reimagining of the older version of "Fearsome Creatures of the Northern Lumberwoods," but he wrote it as a middle grade series of comedic horror stories for children.
0: Ha, huh, interesting. It's a really fun book.
1: Yes. Everyone should check out Fearsome Creatures of the Lumberwoods by Hal Johnson. Uh, But he's also an incredible dungeon master, one of the smartest guys I've ever met in my life. And he's been continuing the same storyline with myself and uh, many of his friends for uh, at least the last 20 years. An incredible work of fiction that will never in any way (laughs) be recorded or experienced by anyone else. But it takes place around the year 988 in, uh, we're mostly in Central Europe. But the conceit of his game world is that. All religions, all mythologies are all true. Everywhere you meet, you're going to meet some other monster, the local monster from the local regions because he was a comparative religions major back in college. So he brought a lot of that knowledge to the game and it's just a fantastic game.
0: Well, I I see, I mean, his role as the dungeon master in this never ending game that you guys are playing. I see that as kind of contributing to his creativity for his writing.
1: Oh, absolutely. It is. And when his book came out, he was getting interviewed here and there and he was trying to work that angle or people would always ask him about it uh, because he was such a, a known dungeon master and and re- respected in the world of new york city dungeons and dragons players as much <laughs> as there is a world of that but he was yeah just a, a fantastic uh, dungeon master and great author uh he's got a couple other books out check them all out they're all good and i think
0: enough of that nerdy stuff man let's yeah. go back to season <laughs> all right yeah let's talk a little bit more about the devil
1: Well, I think I'm out of knowledge that I have on the Satanic Panic, if I'm being completely honest.
0: But uh, the Satanic Panic, as it relates to D&D, we have another individual who contributed to this whole shitstorm unfolding, Mm. Patricia Pulling. Mm-hmm. And her son, Irving Pulling, committed suicide, I think, in 1981 or two. And James Dallas Egbert also ended up committing suicide. Saturday. Yes, in, in 1980. But in the end, so we did not finish that story. So in the end, this uh, dear guy, this private investigator found him in New Orleans. And what was actually, he was found by a different private investigator. Who oh, was Really?
1: Re- yeah, it was, there was another guy that he meets, he talks about a meeting him like halfway through the book and he's like, listen, I think you need someone to go investigate the gay bar angle. I think this guy has been, you know, may, he might've gotten caught up in the gay community and uh-huh. William Deere's like, yeah, maybe I'll have my guys look into it. And the other investigator was like, well, I'm gay, so I might be. Better suited for this, and the guy's mm-hmm. like, "Yeah, okay, you go check that out." And eventually, he found him working that angle. He had been like basically uh, flopping on a guy's couch, doing drugs and having sex with him to yeah. to stay there.
0: I, I think he w- he was moving from guy to guy in their apartments mm-hmm. because he was still a minor. He was sixteen, and when these guys were questioned and visited by the investigators, they wanted none of that. So yeah, they're like, "You know what? You've
1: been flopping on my couch long enough, kids. Yeah, you yeah,
0: move on." So in the end, one of his lovers, I think, bought him uh tickets to New Orleans
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so he was eventually yeah, reunited with his family, but he still was unable to uh, address his personal demons and, and, yeah, and yeah. unfortunately taking his own life. He
0: ended up committing suicide. I think almost one year after this whole uh, disappearance and this fiasco yeah. and the media circus, I think the media circus might've contributed a lot to that.
1: It probably didn't yeah. help, but also, yeah, it is really funny that William Deere did sort of get an extra level of fame and sell a book off for following the completely wrong track of this investigation. And then the kid was found and died a year later. Well, Well, you
0: know, what's uh, funny about William Deere and how he ties into my podcast. Mm -hmm. He was one of the investigators for the 1995 alien autopsy. Mm, I remember that. Yeah. That was uh, on Fox television. (laughs) I remember that. Yeah. That VHS
1: was a huge seller. God, I'd love to watch that again. I haven't seen that in ages.
0: Yeah. I found it very funny. When I was reading that, they said that they had him investigate only some minuscule things because they thought that he would crack that it's all a hoax. (laughs) So they kept him looking for leads on some minor stuff and not some important (laughs) stuff. Yeah, that's probably a good call.
1: Uh, All right. But we were talking about bothered about
0: Dungeons and Dragons back on Patricia. What was was her name? Patricia Pulling. Patricia Pulling. uh, after her son committed suicide, she was convinced that uh, someone put a curse on him through Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. As you would be because she, she found some, some, some kind of letter or something where it was stated like, I am putting a curse on you, whatever. So she proceeded to sue the principal of his school and then to to sue the, the company that was owning Dungeons and Dragons at the time. Yes. Just, yeah, obviously both of the lawsuits were dismissed. Yes. Thank
1: God. I mean, and I, feel nothing but sympathy for her i can only imagine the, the the depths of uh grief that you must be feeling in that sort of situation but to blame dungeons and dragons shows to me that
0: you did not know your child as well as you should have perhaps yeah and um unfortunately i think in 1982 she formed bad bothered about dungeons and dragons bad with two d's Mm-hmm. And she became a whole thing in the media and was interviewed left and right, and ended up on 60 Minutes with Gary Gygax, the maker of Dungeons and Dragons, debating him. Mm-hmm. Now, this is what she uh, she also uh, like wrote so many articles about Dungeons and Dragons and its negative effects on children and whatnot. But it was all you know Christian based. Mm-hmm. This is how she describes the the dangers of the game fantasy role playing game which uses demonology witchcraft voodoo murder rape blasphemy suicide assassination insanity sex perversion homosexuality prostitution satanic type rituals gambling barbarianism cannibalism sadism desecration demon summoning necromantics divination and other teachings i mean (laughs) that that was not my typical saturday night with nathan and eric i'll
1: say that much (laughs) And I'd also say like that didn't age well,
0: like blasphemy. Yeah, I mean, And also, yeah,
1: at least I'm going to say at least 40% of those things are fine.
0: <laughs> and I'd say at least 60% of those the- uh, things overlay with Christianity, which does the same. <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on, let's get off our high horse here a little bit. Uh And so on 60 Minutes, Gary Gygax had this quote. I I have his whole quote because I find it fascinating. Mm -hmm. And this is something that people bring up on other podcasts a lot. So he said in defense of Dungeons and Dragons being, you know, the cause of all these children's suicides, he said, this is make-believe. No one is murdered and there is no violence there. To use an analogy with another game, who is bankrupted by a game of Monopoly? Nobody is. The money isn't real. There is no link except perhaps in the minds of those people who are looking desperately for any other cause than their own failures as a parent, which is mm. very harsh knowing what Patricia Pulling went through.
1: Yeah, but at the same time, Patricia Pulling is
0: also saying, you made my son commit suicide. Like, if someone yeah. said that to me, like, no, no, I didn't do that. And you know, you know what's more fucked up? Like, we, we were talking about Dallas. So mm-hmm. his uh, parents were not into the whole d being an aspect of his disappearance and eventual suicide. Mm-hmm. And then Patricia Pulling is saying oh dnd causes all this shit and then you know causes homosexuality so that ties into dallas's case and uh, it's it's just bad yeah yeah it's pretty gross and you know
1: and you could see why there might be correlation in that Dungeons and Dragons does appeal to weird kids I mean when it started out gaining popularity initially it was just something that was done around like college campuses but eventually I think became associated more with nerdy high school kids who have bad social skills you know because it offers two things that I think nerds really love one of them is an escapist power fantasies and another one is complex rules so I think the type of people that are drawn to that are type of people who might not necessarily have the most robust emotional support network out there
0: you know? but you see everybody has a power fantasy only those who do not uh, express it through dnd or video games or comic books express it through becoming bankrupt businessmen mm-hmm. uh, who fuck over so many people so well they they have more power realities <laughs> than power fantasies <laughs> Well, they make their power fantasy a power reality. Maybe yeah. if everybody played D&D, the world would be a much better place.
1: <laughs> I think so. I love playing d d It's still, I still enjoy a game. I've got buddies that I meet up with on average once a month. We'll meet up over Zoom, the same guys that I've been playing with all these years. Now we're all living in a bunch of cities and, you yeah. know, we'll play for, you know, two, three hours once a month. See how it's because doing.
0: of that. You are not rich businessmen because you are indulging in your power fantasies. Thus, you don't have a need to make it a power reality.
1: Yeah. Yes. That's
0: the reason you've that you've nailed it. So if anything, D and D causes people to just become uh mediocre in life. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with being mediocre. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I could be below mediocre. This is, this is great for me. Uh, isn't that kind of fucked up? I um, I think, when we're talking about suicide back then, people did not understand mental illness. And so many honest. people
1: to this day don't. It's just, uh, it's when you talk to people about suicide, the way that they talk about it just feels like it's so retrograde. It's it's still something where we need a lot more public education
0: about. They were clinging to these ideas even after the satanic panic when video game violence became a thing. Like, mm-hmm. oh, our children's interests are turning them into monsters. No, what's turning people into monsters is denying them their interests.
1: Yeah, they the idea that Dungeons and Dragons is going to well anyway anyway, it's obviously absurd Yeah, that's fine. I don't need to you you're listening to this You know what I think I don't need to keep <laughs> hitting that nail on the head uh, Dungeons and dragons is fun and safe and it's not I don't need to debate this This is
0: we're not in the middle of the satanic panic right? Now. Unless I am correct and we can use this for divination and it is actual magic, but then so what who cares?
1: Yeah, I mean i'm gonna say if Dungeons and Dragons is actual magic? Then you can find actual magic in just about anything, which exactly, is not a bad the, way to go through your life. Fine, yes, absolutely. that's the
0: point. That's the point of magic and divination. Ah, you're yes. learning something.
1: Any place you can draw your inspiration from. Yes, if it's exactly. magic.
0: Yeah, that's why I like to think of that
1: as all sort of yeah spiritual Rorschach tests.
0: Yes. I I wanted to mention, so during the 80s, we we had the satanic panic over video, not video games, over tabletop games in America and over metal music. Mm -hmm. But uh, across the pond in the UK, are you aware of the video nasties? Uh,
1: A little bit. I ran into a little bit of their mythology back when I was managing a video store, but I I don't remember the list too much, but basically that they were all movies that were just banned in the UK for just being too, too shocking
0: yes yes Too morally depraved th- this was the advent of vhs and home uh, media and now people could watch at home whatever they wanted and there was this whole list i think margaret margaret thatcher was a huge supporter of this act oh of, i
1: wouldn't be surprised
0: of banning a whole list of these horror movies as video nasties and anyone having a vhs copy of the movie could be fined or sent to jail now mm-hmm. This spawned from also a few murders that were committed. And it was thought that, oh, people are watching horror movies and becoming murderers. But there was no satanic panic element to that in the UK. The satanic panic stuff was only in the US. But in the UK, we were still having uh, moral panic, but not satanism related. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And I I could see the groundwork for the the satanic panic in America being, uh, you know, it's evangelical Christian cultural background being a big part of that, you know, and, and, and America specific.
0: Yeah. It's, it's this idea. So with the UK and the video nasties, it's like, Oh, children are watching a movie and that is causing them to become serial killers. You're looking for an external force, which is causing somebody to become criminal Mm -hmm. and violent. So, okay. They, they say they draw the line at, okay, those are movies, but in America, they don't draw the line at music or tabletop games, but rather, Rather look further to say, oh, it's Satan using mm-hmm. these art forms to communicate with children. <laughs> and it's always yeah. this need to look for an outside force that is causing people to do what people do when they are mentally ill or oppressed. Mm hmm.
1: Yeah, it's it's a lot easier than saying, we need to take care of sick people. We need to address systemic problems that might drive someone to do desperate acts. Instead, you could just say, we need
0: to get the devil out of Dungeons and Dragons. Man, and we still have that (laughs) going on today. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, I wish I could say that the, the satanic panic of the eighties was the last case of uh mass delusion that I will experience in my lifetime, but it continues to go on. But because I feel like it is at least in the form that it was, we can see so distinctly it's beginning to its end, that it is something that is worth looking at and knowing about. And, and to see like when we look at the sort of two biggest factors leading up to it being the McMartin preschool trial and the, uh, Michelle remembers book, and both of those being about. A credulous media About amplifying these stories Without checking them first Mm -hmm. And how that allowed them To spiral out And have this outsized uh, Cultural impact I think that is If there was a way That I could think To stop this going forward It would have to be Higher standards For Mm -hmm.
0: media Amplifying these ideas But you see I I was pondering over this today Back then The media was more unified Like you had All the media circuits Reporting on the same thing But now We like to say That media is very polarized. We have CNN and we have Fox News and how that is a bad thing, but maybe it's a good thing because if Fox News uh, tries, you know, to promote another satanic panic, we would have the liberal media on their ass. You know, yeah, and and vice versa.
1: Yeah, there there is at least some form of check and balance. Yes. It does have the downside of everyone thinking fifty percent of the population is completely insane, <laughs> but you know, other than that, it does it does have at least that as a positive. And I think also, you know, we're still seeing people getting a lot more information from the internet. Also, is a, a huge player in this field, and that allowing fringe voices like this to both sort of be amplified and connect through things like QAnon but also to keep a certain upper limit on it. Like Mm -hmm. right now, like the mainstream media on both sides have more or less been able to look at QAnon and say, okay, we need to divest ourselves from that. We need to make sure that this stays a fringe belief and you know, we may condemn it more or less than the other guys, but nobody's completely gonna run with that story and say, oh, this
0: is fine. That one is just too hot for either team to touch. I also want to point out, dude, that both of us are cryptid podcasters. Thus we are both you know, in the fringe.
1: <laughs> it's true. Yeah, we're, we are definitely part of those online weirdos, but not those specific online weirdos. And even it, with with your mysticism and my uh, um, universal humanism, uh, neither of us are, are particularly harmful kooks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, maybe we need harmless kooks to control the harmful kooks, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah, we <laughs> you, need, to get need a good some fringe more, and a bad fringe. <laughs> we need some more friendly cults out there. <laughs> oh, man we need the liberal fringe and and the
1: the conservative fringe yeah they all just need to get lined up behind nice
0: reasonable guys who will keep them out of trouble that's the what we need but, but you see, uh, both of our shows have a very liberal attitude, and we talk about the paranormal, monsters, and stuff like that. But it's true. I have not noticed ever on your show you talking about conspiracy theories, and that's something that I also don't want to promote on my show. Yeah, it's it's definitely just like this is this is a problem. <laughs> yes, yes. So even though we are a part of the you know paranormal, conspiracy, true crime, fringe, you know. Still, yeah. we, we don't want to promote that stuff. We want to make this more positive and humanist.
1: Yeah, let's make something that everybody can just have fun tuning into. Maybe you learn something, but nothing you're going to learn is important. And, we're, you know,
0: like, a, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that. <laughs> okay, I wanted to ask you. So as uh, somebody who has been playing D&D for 30 years in your own specific way, how do you feel about me promoting the idea that people who have nothing, no knowledge of D&D and nothing to do with it, appropriating it for, let's say, divination or other mystical creative purposes well i feel like to me that sounds like an odd choice but you know, it's your
1: divination. Mm-hmm. I'll live and let live. It, it's uh, to me. It seems like you're you're just choosing it as sort of an aesthetic set dressing for a divination, since it, it feels like an arbitrary choice to me. But yeah. that said, it's a perfectly reasonable aesthetic. I have a lot of fun playing Dungeons and Dragons. Although I will say, I do not. I'm not one of those guys that's like has really cool dice and like pictures of dragons on my wall. You know, I don't let it define me that I play Dungeons and Dragons. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Like every now and then someone will give me like novelty socks as a Christmas gift or something, and they'll have a dragon on them or whatever. And the last thing I ever want is for someone to come up to me and say, hey, nice socks. Do you play Dungeons and Dragons? Like that just sounds like a terrible conversation that I don't want to (laughs) have. Well, I mean,
0: you're a responsible adult now.
1: Yeah. And, 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 I'm, and I'm curmudgeonly. I don't, I, I have enough friends. I don't need to get to know you. You're it's fine.
0: <laughs> oh man. I feel like you, you really listeners. The, the reason we're doing this episode now is because shibble, when we did our last episode and we we're just talking after the episode, you told me like, Oh, I want to talk about the satanic panic. Maybe we can do another episode about that. So mm-hmm. I feel like you on your podcast, talking about cryptids, you don't have an outlet to talk about satanic panic and you want to talk about it. So yeah, I I mean, I think it's a
1: fascinating subject,
0: you know, like I said, in terms
1: of art, I've always been interested in the idea of, failure that's always been a theme that i return to in in my artwork and so i feel like this as sort of a societal failure is just fascinating to me that so many people were just dead wrong thinking that there were actually satanic cults and that was here in america in our lifetimes you know like we think that guy went over you know i just listened to your episode about the pope of bawa Mm-hmm. that's what i'm getting at to go over there and be like can you believe these people believe in the popo Bell? Yeah, yeah like well, over here we believe that there are satanic cults that are cutting up babies and pouring them into barrels like this is not
0: happening get off your high horse yeah yeah exactly Th- that's why i said like moral panic is an essential component of the human condition maybe it only assumes a different mask based on the society and culture in which it manifests
1: Yeah, but hopefully saying that, that doesn't mean that it's inevitable, that this is something that we can watch and try to prevent and improve ourselves as individuals and as a society by not being credulous enough to believe this sort of thing. Yeah, I want to say when it comes down to believing people, obviously it's a very delicate line to walk when you're talking about believing people who are saying they have been abused. This is something that always needs to be taken seriously. If someone is saying, I was abused by a satanic cult that is run by the mayor and the sheriff and they put me in a barrel... With baby parts, that's when you need to stop and say, I'm going to look into this, but mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm not going to take this as an article of
0: faith. You know? uh, and I do think that it should be looked into, but not like from the perspective that what they're saying actually happened, but rather what they're saying is a kind of fantasy they latch onto to repress the actual truth. We saw this a lot with alien abduction scenarios with people who were victims of childhood sexual ab- abuse mm-hmm. really in their lives, but they were using the alien abduction narratives to kind of cope with it all.
1: Yeah. The idea that, you know, it's like every now and then my wife and I will have that same little discussion. Of What would you do if I told you I saw a ghost? Because I don't believe in the ghosts. And I'm not sure that my wife believes in ghosts, but they might. And if they saw a ghost, they wouldn't be surprised or as surprised as I would be. But Mm -hmm. if they came up to me and said, you know, I saw a ghost and I would say, well, okay, first thing we need to do is get out of the house. Doesn't matter whether or not you saw a ghost. You saw something. Let's address this issue. Let's get out of here. We'll figure out how to deal with the ghost tomorrow. You know, Mm -hmm. and I think that's sort of, you're not going to go say, well, my wife saw a ghost. 100% ghosts are real. You know, to me, that's the happy medium that we need to be following. But obviously it's a very complicated issue.
0: I think it's also uh, influenced by the society and the land and your environment Mm -hmm. Uh, as somebody who has moved from continent to continent his whole life i do see how the society you are surrounded by influences your beliefs and your even delusions and whatnot yeah no man is an island one alien abductee i had on my show and collaborated with a lot he had these alien Mm -hmm. abduction experiences when he was in new york city but when he moved to hawaii he no longer had alien abduction stuff happen but he had other hawaiian related stuff happen Mm. You figure it'd be easier to abduct someone in Hawaii. <laughs> well, that's because the alien abduction stuff is kind of is a part of this collective unconsciousness of, of, mm. of the society you are in. That's fair. J- just as I say, in the UK, there was... This moral panic over video nasties, but it was not satanic panic related because that's not a thing in the UK. UK is more secular than America.
1: Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what other global moral panics that I don't know about are there because there, there must be hundreds and hundreds of them. Yeah. Do you know of anything along those lines happening over in Bosnia?
0: Oh, in Bosnia, we have a whole history of bloody wars that we lost. So, you know, all of our moral panics are related to ethnic cleansing and genocide. Oh, those aren't fun ones to talk about. Never mind. (laughs) That's nowhere near because those are actually happening. Yes. Yes. It's always. So over here, it's always the moral panic of, oh, no, not another war that's going to spark.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I will say at the very least, the satanic panic did not lead to any genocides.
0: So thank goodness for that. Only imaginary genocides. Yes. Of, of uh, millions of babies that never were.
1: Yes. Just fantastical genocides of children having children and being put into barrels with those children.
0: Now, I wanted to ask you, do you have any favorite movies related to Satanic Panic? I know that there was a movie that was
1: adapted from Remembering Satan, but I don't remember what it was called. And I don't think it was part of the promotional materials. I just read the plot and it was mm-hmm. like, that is that exact same book. But obviously I'm going to say you should check out Mazes and Monsters. That's a fun afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> you get to see
0: a young Tom Hanks. That's half the charm. Now, now here's one that you maybe know uh, this one. I like the house of the devil. It's a new one. Oh, does that, uh, with Tom Noonan
1: in it came out like 10 years ago.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was actually filmed in the style of eighties movies. Yeah. Yeah. That was a great movie. Really fun. Really scary. Yeah. Yeah, definitely check out House of the Devil. And when we're talking about movies, uh, funnily enough, uh, w- when I think about these shitty uh, exploitation movies related to Satanism, most mm-hmm. of them were from the sixties or seventies, not from yeah. the eighties.
1: Yeah, I feel like the film industry sort of capitalized on uh, the rise of Church of Satan a little bit faster than uh-huh. the moral panic did. You know, and probably you know by the time the moral panic was rolling around, the movies decided they should get out of the Satan business. <laughs> And didn't get back into the late nineties when they were getting ready for the millennium.
0: Oh yeah. But the thing is, you know, that the Dungeons and Dragons game Mm -hmm. sold so many copies because of the satanic panic. And when when the satanic panic stopped being a thing by the end of the nineties, they almost went bankrupt because nobody was buying the game anymore, which is why they needed to sell it to wizards of the, of the coast.
1: Well, there are a lot of reasons why Dungeons and Dragons was going bankrupt. One of them is that there's an inherent flaw of the business model in that you only really need to sell somebody one book and then they can make up games for the rest of their lives. So eventually, everybody who wants to play Dungeons and Dragons is going to have bought the one book. And then you have no one left to sell your books to. And that's that, to me, is the main economic flaw that brought down Dungeons and Dragons. And so now Wizards of the Coast bought it. And so they just release new editions every couple of years. so They can keep on bringing in new players and getting old players to rebuy books. And uh, also their books are crazy expensive. Mm-hmm. I think a player's handbook nowadays costs 50 bucks, but...
0: You know, for a lifetime worth of fun and games with your friends, I say it's well worth it. And how how did they deal with the pandemic? Was it like some kind of online service or something else?
1: Um, most of the people I know who are playing online were using third-party platforms. Uh there's one called Roll20 that's very good. It's basically like Zoom, but it also has a very large uh like graph paper whiteboard that you can draw on and it has built-in dice. You know, I haven't looked at their sales figures. I don't follow them as a business particularly closely. Especially, like I said, because I stopped buying Dungeons and Dragons books that were printed uh, about uh, 20 years ago. It's probably the most recent one that I purchased. Yeah. Uh, and and one, every now and then I'll like go and check out the used section or like the, the role playing game section in the used bookstore and see if they have anything that looks cool from second edition. So I've got a pretty solid collection, but you know. Nothing that I need.
0: I I was going to ask you, did you like uh, see remnants of Satanic Panic in the 90s when you were growing up? But then I'm remembering now, I'm somebody who grew up in the late 90s and the 2000s. And I remember, you know, Harry Potter when Harry Potter came out.
1: Yeah, Harry Potter was the next one that got hit with it.
0: Yes, and then Pokemon as well.
1: Yeah, a little bit Pokemon, but Harry Potter got it pretty bad.
0: (laughs) So, so yeah, it, it, keeps it still on going around. Yeah, it still kept going around and around. Um and now uh, we have it but uh, with right-wing people for political reasons.
1: Yeah, now now it's yeah, QAnon and protesting drag shows. Uh,
0: okay, a damn shame. That's a whole other episode. <laughs> yeah. Talking about monsters but uh, the the ones who are against
1: that. Well, Thank you so much for
0: talking to me about, uh, the satanic panic and Dungeons and Dragons. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. The, the, I think this was a very fun episode. Like there are millions of episodes out there with all this history and dates and names and whatnot, but this was more of a conversation and
1: yeah, we're not coming here as
0: experts. Yeah. We're coming here yeah. as, as two learners
1: talking yes, about what we've yes. learned.
0: Yes, exactly. So can you tell my listeners where they can find you and plug your show?
1: Yes. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. If Elon Musk hasn't broken Twitter yet at Chris, the friend, uh, You can also find my podcast, Uncle Monster's Spooky Time Fright Hour, at Uncle Monster Podcast. And you can also find Uncle Monster's Spooky Time Fright Hour, my podcast about cryptids, on all your
0: preferred podcast platforms. Yes. And uh, if you want to listen to Shibble more on my show, check out our prior episode. I can't remember what it's called. now. (laughs) Just, Just search Shibble and you'll find it. Yeah, I'm in there. Yeah okay thank you man for doing this this was very fun i should have ethan on (laughs) yeah he's he's going through a lot these days his Uh, girlfriend just got in a car wreck ah man yeah, you can't I'll, get I'll send him a message then after we start recording. But yeah, um, I th- I'm thinking Ethan will be <laughs> very jealous because I was his friend first for over a year. And then now I'm making content with you.
1: Yeah, yeah, he, he does get jealous. And he did want me to clear up that he didn't use any of the research you sent him. He did it all
0: himself. Yes, I, I know because. Because your research <laughs> sent him more facts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when I listen to the episode, I'm like, where did he pull this out of? <laughs> actually you know what's funny Uh, Mm -hmm. when you and i did our first episode uh, for for my show and you were mentioning something that ethan pulled out of his ass relating to the popo bow i think that it's uh, the ghost of the assassinated president or whatnot Mm -hmm. and dr thompson the actual popo bow expert told me like yeah i listened to the show and i heard this theory that i never heard before like where does that come from Well, I'm glad he did because it gave me something to talk about other than rape, (laughs) so uh, that was really
1: helpful when he mentioned that. Uh,
0: Okay. Thank you very much, and for the listeners all the links will be in my episode description. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. No problem, man.